So heartless God, uh, we're going to uh, talk about that this morning, and we've been talking about the hurdles or challenges that many people have to putting their faith in God through this series. Uh, and there's a lot of people that want to believe in God, uh, but they can't believe in God, or they can't bring themselves to believe in Him uh, for a number of different reasons. And so we've taken some of those reasons throughout the series, and we, we've said, okay, is that belief that is stopping you from, from actually putting your faith and trust into God, is that actually true? Uh, and I, and the, the whole premise of the series is that the things that we believe about God or, or we tend to believe about God aren't necessarily true. They might be distorted views about God. And so we believe untrue things about God. And then as time goes on, we actually say, I can't believe in God, uh, ironically, because we're believing false things about him. Uh, so we've, we've gone through a number of those topics already. Uh, next week, we're going to wrap up the series as we talk about the anti-science God, so this belief that, um, you know, that science and God are kind of uh, opposites and that you can't believe in both. Uh, so we're going to tackle that one next week. Uh, but this morning, we're talking about heartless God. And in the survey uh, that we sent out before the series, and we asked, you know, what are the hurdles, the barriers for you to believe in God? Uh, here's some of the responses that we got back. It's hard to trust someone who has all the power and seems inconsistent and uninvolved. I want to believe in God, but what about the evil in the world? I want to believe in God, but what about suffering? Someone said, you love him, but sometimes a lot of bad comes and it can be overwhelming and it can lead you to question God. Is he with me? Is he not? What's all happening? Someone responded, I want to believe in God, but... And they just said, extended family. Amen. <laughs> no, just, I, I found that, uh, I don't know what's behind that story. Uh, not sure what to do with that one. Uh, why does extended family happen? Uh, I want to believe in God, but where is God when I get hurt? Why doesn't he show up for me? I want to believe in God, but the young kids and teens die or get cancer. Why does that happen? I want to believe in God, but why do so many terrible things happen? I want to believe in God, but wondering how God can allow horrible things to happen to children. So, uh, Far and away, this was the, the, the most common response in the survey was around pain and suffering and evil. And historically, uh, the biggest barrier and hurdle to Christian faith has been pain and suffering and evil. Uh, and I can even testify this to, as a pastor. I have met with people around this topic more than any other topic in my time as a pastor. Uh, and... At SunWest, we, we like to have fun quite a bit, uh, but forgive me if this is, feels a little bit more of a serious uh, kind of morning, because I believe that it's a, a serious topic, it's an important topic uh, that many of us have wrestled with or will wrestle with at some point in our lives. And chances are, uh, many of you have had your own moments, and if it's not right now, it might be coming down the road, or it might just be something that you've observed as you turn on a screen, your phone, the television, and you see, uh, you know, no all sorts of things, from terrorist attacks to world wars to the poorest of the poor who tend to keep suffering. And uh, even when we think statistically, uh, when we think of the world statistics, in a room like this or people that are attending here online this morning, uh, there's any number of people that have gone through significant issues, even personally, of, of abuse and all manner of things. And so we don't have to look very far to, to discover this question, uh, to find the tension of faith in the face of suffering and evil, and how do you uh, make sense of a God uh, who would allow that to happen? It might be something quite simple, maybe something you're praying for, uh, that you've been praying for a lot, and you know that God could do it. 
but for some reason he hasn't done it. And so it leads you to say, why, God, haven't you done this? Uh, are you even there? Do you even care? And so if you're someone who's ever asked that question, you're not alone. Uh, in fact, you'll find great company throughout history and even in this community of people who are wrestling with that very same question. Uh, even in the Bible, we find uh, David. We mentioned even last week, but he was a man after God's own heart. And he cries out again and again and again throughout the Psalms, where are you, God? Why don't you answer any of my prayers? Why don't you do something? I've been faithful. I'm trying to do the right thing, but you're not showing up. And if you've ever had uh, the patience to read through the book of Job, uh, you know that that is one frustrating book. Uh, here's a righteous guy who, who seems to be doing everything right, and Satan wants to attack him, and he takes his livestock. He takes his career. He takes his health. His family is a wreck. He has boils all over his body. His best friends who he depended on turned out to be undependable and gave him terrible advice and blamed him. And his wife even looks at him and says, well, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? You know, right when you need your, your spouse to support you in your darkest moment, she says, it would just be better if you were dead. Anybody have a spouse ever say that to them? <laughs> Many people are sitting beside their spouses, and I don't see any hands in the air. It would be better if you were just dead. Uh, and that's Job's wife's response to his problem of suffering. And, and so, Job, everything is going wrong, and everything's going sideways. And he said, God, where are you? Are you heartless? Do you not care what's happening? This just doesn't seem fair. And over and over again, you go through scriptures, you find this. You, you go, get into the New Testament. Uh, when Jesus comes, uh, there's a significant character in the in the story, right before Jesus starts his public ministry, named John the Baptist. I mean, if you're a church person, maybe you've heard of this name or you know about John, but maybe you don't. And, and so here's just a, a quick overview that John is a cousin of Jesus and that John was, uh, he had a calling. He had a purpose in his life to prepare the way for the ministry of Jesus. And so he went around, he said, everybody, Jesus is coming. Uh, prepare the way, the Messiah is coming. Uh, get ready, repent of your sins, be baptized, be ready for the kingdom of God, for this movement that is about to happen. And so people start following John. But John says, don't follow me, follow Jesus. John has, he, he's humble. He knows who he is. He says, I'm not the one to be following. Jesus is the one to be following. I'm unworthy to even tie Jesus' sandals. And so he's the one you ought to give your life to. And so John's whole life was oriented around pointing people to Jesus, preparing the way for Jesus. And as the story unfolds, we recognize that John actually finds himself in prison. He's in trouble. He is on death row. And he spent his life up until this point preparing the way for Jesus, pointing people to Jesus. It's been the sole focus of his life. And you know what? He's probably thinking if I was in John's shoes, um, I'm the cousin of Jesus. You know, I am the prophet that God called even to prepare the way for Jesus. I've given my life to serving Jesus, to pointing people towards him. I've seen his power. He's healed the sick. I hear the stories, the lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised. And those are nobodies. And if Jesus can raise the dead of nobodies and he can heal the sick and he can do everything for them, I've got no doubt that Jesus is going to show up and save me from death row. I mean, Jesus even does party tricks for no names. I mean, he's turning water into wine at parties. You know, of course, he's going to show up for me. And so you can just see John like imagining this epic moment, like Herod's got him in prison and, and he's just like waiting for like that 
um, that moment where Jesus shows up unexpected with all of his angels and the angels like cause all of the all the Roman soldiers to get like rashes all over their body. Uh, you know, Jesus does this miraculous thing, breaks open the prison doors, and and uh, you know, John just gives him a little smirk when he walks into the prison. They give like a fist pump, and then they do like the slow motion walk away from the prison as everything explodes in the background. <laughs> you just see like the smirk on his face. Yeah, you know, Jesus. You know, if I was John, you know, I would have probably had some expectations on how Jesus was going to show up for me. Because after all, you know, I'd given my life to serving him. Uh, and so Jesus, or John is waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting, and Jesus never comes. Jesus seems to be showing up for everybody else, but he doesn't show up for him. Jesus is healing everybody else, but he's not helping John. Jesus is raising people from the dead, and John is about to die. And so John has this moment of doubt, this moment of crisis where he, he sends uh, some guys out and says, hey, can you ask Jesus if he's actually the one, if he's the Messiah? Did I give my whole life preparing the way for the wrong person or what's going on here? And so uh, the, uh, the guys get sent out and they said, John wants to know if you're the one, if you're the Messiah. Um, and Jesus said, send John this message back that the, you know, the lame are walking, the blind are seeing, the dead are being raised you know, everything that he expected would happen is happening. And then he said, blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me, which is like this gut punch line. And what Jesus is saying is, basically, John, I am who you thought I was, but I'm not going to show up for you in the way that you expect me to. And the heartbreaking thing about the story of John, but the thing that uh, I love and is in some weird way so comforting is that John experienced what many of us experience in our life. This expectation on God uh, to show up when we need him or when we want him or when he could and he's able and for whatever reason he doesn't and we're left with these doubts and these questions and what are we supposed to do and that's where John found himself. And John would eventually be executed So what do we do with that? If you've ever been at a place where you wanted to believe, but it didn't seem like God cared, it seemed like he was heartless, well, in the next 20 minutes or so, um, I'm going to make you two promises. first promise is uh, I will not be able to answer every question that you have. I can't do it, and I'm not even going to try to. Um, so sorry for disappointed. There's the door. Um, if you're online, you can just hit that X button in the corner of your screen. It'll close the window. But the second promise I can make is that I will point you towards the one who will one day answer every question that you have. He will one day do it. And so let's talk about the problem. Uh, the problem around this heartless God concept is, is such a big deal that it actually has its own name. The study of this question, this problem, is called theodicy. Everybody say theodicy. It's a really fancy word, but basically throughout history, people, poets, pastors, prophets, artists, fathers, mothers, children, have all asked this question in some form. Uh, you know, you could look not very far, and you will find this question in some form. One, there's a musician called Josh Gerrels, and one of his songs, one of the songs I love, uh, called Farther Along, it starts this way. It says, I've wondered why... 
The good man dies, the bad man thrives, and Jesus cries because he loves them both. We're all castaways in need of rope. And see, Josh Gerald is observing the same thing that uh, the writers in the Psalms observed, the same thing that Job observed, the same thing that John the Baptist was wrestling with, the same thing that Paul had to work through that we'll see in a moment, is that when I look around, and I believe in this just God, this good God, uh, but I look around and I'm, what I observe is that good men, people that are authentically trying to do the right thing, are suffering, and bad men are thriving. So this is called theodicy. And, and the, the problem is simply this. There, there's, there's four basic uh, foundational beliefs in Christianity uh, that God does exist, that God is all-powerful, that God is all-good, all-loving, and that evil does exist. Uh, now, we could spend a lot of time talking about this, this problem, and in fact, a few years ago, we did a whole a series based on this, this very problem. Um, and so the challenge this morning is, is time, but uh, let me just be, be brief. Uh, the, the thought is that all four of these cannot coexist. Or there's a lack of understanding of how they can exist. How God can be real, how God can be all-powerful, but that God is also all-good and loving, uh, and that evil still exists. How do all of those work? Uh, and so as people have wrestled through with this question throughout history, many people actually, to make this problem work, they just eliminate one of those truths. They eliminate one of those foundational pieces uh, that the Bible uh, tells us. And so it's quite easy to get rid of the problem if you get rid of one of those four, right? So uh, the first option is that you could just get rid of the idea that God exists at all, uh, which is atheism. There is no God, right? So God doesn't exist. um, And we'll talk about this a little bit more next week, but uh, there is no God. And if I get rid of God, then there is no problem. Uh, There's also other, other forms of this um, you know, some really fancy words, but demythologism, which is basically how we uh, make everything into myth and fairy tale, right? So uh, the God that we see in the Bible, uh, those things didn't really happen. Everything's a fairy tale, and there's just good morals in it, right? And so although we believe in something, uh, we don't actually believe in something that's actual and real and physical. Um, or psychologism, we believe in a subjective God, and this is uh, where our world spends most of its time these days, is, is I believe in my God, you believe in your God, you have your truth, I have my truth, you do you. Anybody heard that? You do you. And this is practically where many people live these days, even if they can't articulate it. We have simply replaced belief in God out there uh, with belief in myself as God. And I'm not sure we're even further ahead when we do that. Obviously, we're not further ahead. Uh, because if truth is actually truth, then there's something about it that is not uh, subjective at all. Um, so that's one way that we can eliminate this problem, is just find ways of getting rid of the existence of God. Uh, or we get rid of the, the power of God. So you have um, old paganism, which is basically polytheism, which belief in many gods, right? And so uh, there isn't... Uh, we, we can choose not to have a monotheistic faith. Mono means one, believing in one God. We could believe instead in many gods, and that would actually explain the problem of evil and suffering because there's not one all-powerful being. There's multiple beings that are waging war against each other, and we're kind of caught in the middle. Or there's new pa- pa- paganism, which is basically scientism, which says that I will only believe in the things that, I can, uh, that science can verify. If science can't detect that something exists, then it won't believe in it. 
the only God that scientism admits is nature or the laws of nature, uh, but not anything supernatural. And as we'll talk about next week, science will, uh, is not actually intended to ask that question at all. Uh, dualism. We could believe in two gods, right? And this was, a, uh, this was popular for a period in time in history where people believed in a good and an evil God and they're at war with each other. And again, similar to polytheism, we find ourselves in the middle and that's why there's pain and suffering in our world. Um, and so one way of getting rid of the problem is just to eliminate the idea that God is all-powerful. Uh, and then that explains suffering and evil. Uh, third way is we get rid of the, the idea that God is actually good. Um, and so this belief in a bad God, which is basically Satanism, and if you believe in that, then you have a whole bunch of other problems. But uh, uh, evil is essentially a distortion of good. Uh, darkness is the absence of light. And so even to believe in evil, you would have to believe in some uh, foundational goodness. Um, pantheism is a, belief, is a belief that God is in everything, that God is everything, and we're part of everything, and that there's not necessarily a, a personal being or will behind everything, uh, and this resolves the problem of evil neatly because evil is a part of God and goodness is too. Hitler is a part of God. Jesus is a part of God. Everything is God. Uh, and pantheism, I'm not... It's just weird. Uh, so uh, then there is a deism, which is how God basically created the world. Um, he wound it up like an alarm clock and he walked away. And so God exists, but God isn't knowable. He's not close. He's somewhere far away. He's indifferent, and he doesn't care. So God exists. There is one God. He created everything, but he's not good. He's not interested. He's off somewhere on vacation or busy doing something else. Or we could simply eliminate the fourth option, that evil exists, and this is idealism. Uh, and that's an umbrella that we could talk about many things, uh, but Buddhism or Christian science would be one. And Buddhism basically says that you know, suffering is a facade. It doesn't actually exist, and we need to actually find our way to nirvana and enlightenment uh, to detach ourselves from desire. Um, and once we do that, then we would realize that suffering is actually a construct that we've made up. So, uh, G.K. Chesterton said the great problem of philosophy is that why little Tommy... Philosophy is why little Tommy loves to torture his cat. That's what G.K. Chesterton said. And so even if you could move your way towards idealism, you still have a problem uh, if you actually pay attention even just a little bit to the world around you. So there's the problem. God exists. God is all-powerful. God is all-good. Evil exists. And the thinking is that you can get rid of the problem of evil by eliminating one of these four. Uh, and so many people throughout history have found their way forward by trying to get rid of one of those four truths. But you will always have problem, uh, a problem to deal with. The, if you eliminate one of those four, those options aren't necessarily more logical. In fact, I would say they're not more logical. Um, many of them are irrational. Uh, but for sure, none of them, uh, and many of them, struggle to be very livable. And what I mean by livable is if you believe in them, if you actually follow them, you will find yourself in a place of anxiety, in a place of a lack of purpose, a lack of hope, and the Christian gospel, which we're going to dive into in a second, actually invites us to faith and hope and love and makes us have a sense of purpose in this world. And just because we can't understand how these four truths actually work together doesn't make them less true. It just simply means we're finite and we're limited and that we're not God. And in summary, that's pretty much what the Bible is telling us is that we're not God. And the sooner that we come to recognize that, the better off that we will be. 
Uh, and so when we come to this problem, we recognize the limitations of how we can actually understand things in the scope of eternity and God and what he's doing in his love and his sovereignty and his power. And we say, I can't quite understand it. Um, but that's a good place to be, actually. If you find yourself in that qu- place of questioning, of doubting, uh, that's the beginning of recognizing, hey, we actually have a limitation and that we're dependent on something other than ourselves, uh, which is where the gospel actually comes to speak to us. So here's the mission. Either way, you know, if, if we could philosophically talk about this question, at the end of the day, it's not a philosophical question. It's a personal question. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Grief Observed, and he wrote it after the death of his wife, Joy, in 1960. Uh, and he didn't want people to know it was him that wrote it, and so he published it under the name N.W. Clerk. And people saw how, uh, how much C.S. Lewis was struggling with the death of his wife, and people read the book, and they're like, hey, there's this great book up there called The Great Grief Observed. Uh, this guy named N.W. Clerk. You should read it. And C.S. Lewis like, ugh. And uh, person after person started recommending this book to him that they didn't know that he wrote. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, but, but the truth is that, that we can understand things and talk about things, but when it becomes personal, it's, it's a different question. Talking about something intellectually, writing about something is not the same thing as going through it. And so even though uh, C.S. Lewis wrote one of the greatest pieces in literature on this problem, even he himself struggled through it to the point that people were recommending his own writings back to him. So it's more than a philosophical question. Thinking about something in your head is not the same as living it out in real life. And so real life... Uh, there's real life happening around us all the time. Uh, you know, in these last couple of years, I can uh, think back to a couple of funerals that I've done of close friends of mine here in this faith community uh, who died, it seemed, too early of, of cancer, too soon, despite many, many prayer meetings, despite a community of people praying around them, believing that God could and that God would and that he's able, and it didn't happen. I think of many Sun Westers uh, that are battling chronic illness, a number of people with unknown diagnosis, debilitating pain, people that can't even leave their homes, people that can't actually show up to work or have a job, countless doctor visits, looking for answers but having no answers. You know, as I sit with people in my office who struggle with mental health and, uh, and who are so beyond hope, they think the only option that they have is to take their own life and they're dealing with this, this hopelessness. You see, it's not really a logical problem, it's a very personal problem. And if you don't feel it personally in the moment, I know at some point in your life we will all feel this personally. God, where are you? And so we're looking for truth. What's the truth? What do I do with what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, how do I process this? and so as a pastor, like I said, I don't have all the answers, uh, but I do ha- what I have, I give to you this morning. Uh, and here it is, truth is ultimately not logic. Truth is ultimately more than reasoning. In John chapter 1, in the Gospel of John, it begins, and it says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning, and, and that word, word, is the word logos in, in Greek, which is where we get the word logic from. In the beginning was the logic of God, the logos of God. God's Logos was there in the beginning. And then John says, that Logos, that logic, actually became flesh. 
The word became flesh. And then John goes on to say that flesh made his home among us. And the actual word in the text there is made his tabernacle among us, which if you look in the the, the history of, of Israel, you understand that haber, tabernacle was the place where heaven and earth met, where God's presence dwelt uniquely. And so what John is saying is that God, the Logos, the logic of God, came and made his home among us, made his tabernacle among us, brought heaven to earth. This place, this God that we thought was far off somewhere else, uh, actually came to us. And so what we learn as we follow the gospel, the story of Jesus, is that truth isn't an idea ultimately. Truth isn't just reasoning or logic. That truth is ultimately a person. That Jesus said, I am the truth, the way, and the life. And so when we're asking questions about truth, in some way it's easy for us just to you know, think about it, uh, to reason about it, to ration, to to engage a rational mind, but Jesus actually invites us beyond our logic, beyond our rationalization in, in saying that I am the truth. I am actually what you're searching for. Uh, Israel wanted this, they were waiting for this deliverer, this Messiah that was going to show up and make everything right, that was going to right every single wrong in the world, and Jesus shows up, and they didn't know who he was at first, but we learn in the Christmas story uh, that Jesus was Emmanuel, which means God with us, that Jesus was God who came to earth, from heaven to earth, put flesh on, and made his home among us. And many people in the first century rejected Jesus as Messiah because he did not show up and fix everything the way that they wanted him to. God himself lived among them and they didn't recognize him because they had an expectation of God that didn't line up with the reality of God and what they were experiencing in the person of Jesus. If we want to know what God's response is to the problem of evil and suffering, Jesus is God's response to the, evil, to the, to the problem of suffering and evil in the world because Jesus is God responding to evil and suffering. And so we cannot actually wrap our head around this question without dealing with the person of Jesus. One of my favorite stories about Jesus uh, elsewhere in John, so you move from John chapter 1 where, where John explains this, that God is in Jesus and he's making himself known among us. And then you see God in Jesus in John chapter 11 who has a very close friend named Lazarus uh, who dies. Uh, and Lazarus had a couple of sisters, Mary and Martha, and Jesus was too late showing up to come and help they're wondering, where are you, God? Where are you, Jesus? Do you not care? All these questions that we've been talking about. Um, and so Jesus comes on the scene, and Mary and Martha both talk to him in separate occasions, and they, they each ask him, uh, where were you? If you would have been here, if you would have showed up, none of this would have happened. Lazarus would still be alive. My brother would still be alive. And Jesus responds and says, you know, don't worry, I'm the resurrection and the life. And they believed in like a future resurrection sometime in the future. And they said, hey, we know uh, that the resurrection is going to come someday down the road, but what about right now? And so in the middle of this narrative in John 11, we have the shortest verse in the entire Bible. And I believe the shortest verse actually holds the key to one of the most complex questions in Christian history. And this is the verse. Jesus wept. In that moment when Mary and Martha were struggling with, you know, are you heartless, God? Do you even care? Where were you? 
the response of God in that moment was weeping. I want you to just ponder that for a second. Jesus wept. The Logos become flesh. God among us, one of us, weeps. And remember, he just said he's the resurrection and the life. Uh, and uh, spoiler alert, at the end of the story, Jesus resurrects Lazarus from the dead right there. And I think Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do the whole time. But before we jump ahead to the end of the story, before we jump ahead to the resurrection, uh, let's pause here in the middle of the story and recognize that the response of God to evil and suffering to this friend that he loved was weeping, was co-suffering with Mary and Martha. Before anything changes... Before Jesus fixes anything, we recognize that God is at least just as interested as being present with us in suffering as he is in fixing suffering. It seems that God, even when he eventually fixes everything, is just as interested in suffering with us before he fixes anything. So Jesus weeps. And then we see this, this idea played out even more fully on the stage of the, the passion, the crucifixion where God with flesh on, the Logos who became flesh, made his home among us, uh, suffers this unjust, unfair death on a cross. This is deicide. This is the murder of God. And so when we ask the question, what is God's response to the problem of evil and suffering in the world, we need to look at Jesus. We need to look at John 11, and then we need to look at the cross and recognize that this the cross is God's answer to suffering and evil in the world. He feels it. He experiences it. He absorbs it. He takes it in. He takes the sin of humanity, the pain of the world, the suffering of the world, and he experiences it on the cross. Now, again, we are tempted to jump ahead to the end of the story and say, well, resurrection happened three days later. Yes, absolutely, it did. Just like we're tempted to jump to the end of the story in John 11 and say, hey, resurrection happened eventually. Yes, it did. But don't skip over the fact that Jesus weeps and that Jesus was crucified, that God himself suffers. The problem, uh, the answer to the problem of suffering that God gives in the person of Jesus is that God himself suffers. Well, how does that even help us? How does that even help me, Matt? Uh, I know what some of you are thinking. Uh, well, hang with me. So, so if we move forward through the the story of Scripture in the New Testament as Jesus' followers begin to come together and the church is taking hold and, and people actually start believing and having faith in Jesus, we, we meet a whole bunch of characters that their perspectives are being transformed in what suffering and pain and evil and sin, what it even means in the grand scheme of the story of God and what Jesus has done. And so uh, we have a character named the Apostle, or Paul, who we call the Apostle Paul. Uh, and if you don't know a lot about Paul, he was a guy that used to hate Christians. And so if you're someone that hates Christians, you would love Paul. Uh, he hated Christians. He hated them more than you did. And in fact, he would go around uh, and he would oversee the murdering, the systematic murdering of the Christian movement until Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus. He had a radical encounter with Jesus uh, and God had caused his eyes to become blind. And, 
And he realized in this encounter that he was persecuting God himself. And he thought he was helping God, but he was actually hurting God because he didn't recognize that Jesus was God. And so Jesus stops him and says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul does a completely 180, realizes that he's been working against God instead of for God, and decides to give his life to following Jesus. And so he has a number of pains and struggles throughout his life. Um, and he has this thing that he calls a thorn, and we don't know what that thorn was, but he has this something in his life, the struggle, a pain, uh, this obstacle that he has prayed and contended for God to take away, uh, and God hasn't. And this is what he says in 2 Corinthians. He says, three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need, my power works best in weakness. Three different times I begged, and that word beg is very, very strong in the Greek. He pleaded, he begged, he, he, he was beside himself, he didn't have any other options. God, show up. Why won't you show up? He pleads with God three different times. And if you know God's going to heal anybody, it should probably be Paul. I mean, right next to John, Paul's like the next, you know, after he turns his life around, he's suffered for Jesus, he's beaten, left for dead multiple times, he's got scars throughout his body, he's been shipwrecked, he's been snake bitten. He's been scarred. He's got scars all over himself. And here's a guy who's even been stoned for Jesus. And I'm not even talking about the, the recreational stone, like the literal stoning, just to be clear. Um, all of our young adults are like, what? You can get stoned for Jesus? No, this is like uh, being physically stoned for Jesus. So if, if there's somebody who should have been healed and helped, it probably should have been Paul. But God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Interesting concept when we talk about uh, the problem of evil and the power of God. Uh, God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient. That's all you need, actually. What you think you need, you don't actually need. And my power that you are expecting to deliver you is actually made perfect in your weakness. And he gives a picture of Paul, like, help me, change me, fix my problems, reveal why, help me understand. And, and, and God is saying, I'm actually enough. My grace is sufficient. And we often think that the thing we need is for God to come up and fix our situation. If God would just fix it, then it would be all better. Uh, but that is a very limited temporal perspective. Remember, God isn't just interested in fixing something, but in being with us and being present with us. And so Paul goes on, he says, so now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure. Everybody say, take pleasure. Take pleasure in my weakness, weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So something has completely transformed Paul's thinking and understanding of how suffering and pain works in relationship to faith in Jesus. Paul found something far greater through his suffering that he wouldn't have found without it. Paul found Christ in his suffering. He found the power of Christ in his suffering. Paul found the grace of God in his suffering, not apart from it, but in it. His depth and understanding of relationship and knowledge of God uh, has actually expanded because of this thing that he didn't want. And so we see this, this truth, this reality that is woven just through the, the stories and the pages in these, uh, in these scriptures is that God is always present in your pain. He's always present. 
And Paul even talks about this in Romans, that there's no place that you can go where God is not, that God is present. We may not always understand what's happening or why something is happening, but the good news is that God is present with us in our pain. In fact, it is often in our pain that many people connect with God in a profound and deeper way. Not that God causes all of our pain, but God can use our pain, and we're going to come to that in a minute. But uh, but Corey Ten Boom helped many Jewish people in World War II escape uh, from the Nazis during the Holocaust, and she would eventually be captured herself and put into a concentration camp. In the midst of all of this that was going on, she was asked this question. How do you know God hasn't abandoned you? How can you be so confident he won't let you slip through his fingers? That was what was asked her. How can you be so confident that God won't let you slip through his fingers? Do you know what her response was? She said, because I am one of his fingers. Now, I think Corey is tapping into something that many of us miss and that the Apostle Paul talks about over and over and over again. Uh, And this is profound. We often think about the problem of pain and suffering and a God who is out there and how come he's not coming to help us. Uh, What Corey Ten Boom actually realized is that she is part of the body of Christ. Now, we often use the term body of Christ when we talk about the community, the church, the body of Christ. Um, And that is part of it, but that's not all of it. The body of Christ is under the head of Christ, which means we are a part of Christ. And so when Corey was asked, how can you uh, be sure that God isn't going to let you slip through her fingers, the assumption in the question was that you are actually far or separate from God. And Corey's answer assumed a different vision and perception altogether, is that I am actually a part of God. That I am actually in Christ. That I am a part of the body of Christ. Uh, now, now we're tapping into this Uh, to a great mystery here. Uh, But the term in Christ actually appears in your New Testament, in in the, the, the New Testament of the Bible, 97 times at least. 97 times. And we learn that when you place your faith, your trust in Christ, you are actually part of Christ. You are in Christ. It's not like I'm believing and I'm trusting in some God that is out there. As I place my faith in Christ, I am, I am actually enveloped into God himself in the person of Christ. So God is in me, but I am in him. But what does this even mean? Well, in Colossians 1, uh, Paul says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. And this is one of those verses that will just mess you up if you sit with it long enough. Uh, Let me read in a different translation. I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue. See, what Paul understands, and what many of us fail to understand what what I often fail to understand is that not only is God always present in your pain, when you experience pain, you are present with Christ in his pain. Okay? It's not God, where are you in my suffering? Is when you are suffering, you are actually, as you put faith in Christ, you're in Christ, so you are participating in the sufferings of Christ. For I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue. 
So what Jesus suffered on the cross was not the end of suffering. You know, often we think oversimplistically that Jesus went to the cross so we don't have to experience the cross. Well, Jesus went to the cross so that the pains and suffering and sin that we have in our life actually is not the end of the story. That's why he went to the cross. It gives our pain and suffering context. It gives us hope. I don't know what the greatest pain is that you've ever had in your life, um, and I've had pretty, a pretty unexciting life when it comes to pain. Um, I don't have any radical pain stories. Um, I think probably the most pain I've ever experienced was, was kidney stones uh, quite a number of years back, and I was told by the doctor uh, that it's worse than childbirth, uh, and that's something that you're never supposed to say from stage. I'm um, getting glares from uh, many women in the audience right now. Um, but let's think about childbirth for a second, which is, uh, which is a great picture of pain. Uh, I remember going to prenatal classes. So when our first uh, born son, was, before he was born, we went to prenatal classes, uh, and I had no idea what I was doing. In fact, I remember them going around the circle and asking all of the husbands and the, uh, the wives in the room, and they were saying, hey, what's your greatest question? How can we help you? Uh, what, 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 what question do you have coming to the prenatal classes with? And I said, you know what? Uh, I don't even know enough to form a question. Like, uh, being able to articulate a question means that I actually know anything, and I know nothing, so I have no questions. Um, and, and, and so uh, they, they kind of joined us in that class and talked about uh, the, the labor uh, and what was going to happen and preparing us for it. And part of the exercise in that class uh, was for the wives to understand how helpless the husbands feel uh, in the moment of labor. And so there was a, there was a uh, practice that we did where we husbands, uh, were, we, we did like a wall squat, right? So we put our backs against the wall. Uh, has anybody done this in the prenatal classes? Okay, I, gotta, I see a few hands here. So you put your back against the wall and you do like a 90 degree in your legs, you do a squat on the wall and you're just supposed to hold it for, uh, for a very long time. Uh, and your legs are burning and shaking and, and the instructions to the wives were, hey, now help your husbands feel encouraged, uh, help them in their pain, help them in their suffering. Uh, and I remember Lisa just like laughing and like, uh, what am I supposed to say? And I'm like, my legs are shaking. I was like, help me, help me. Uh, she's like, there's nothing I can do. Uh, and, and it's true. I mean, I had to do that all on my own. And so, you know, we fast forward in the future and now we're in the labor room uh, and Lisa's giving birth and she's got labor pains and uh, I'm standing beside her. And thinking, what am I supposed to do? I mean, maybe, you, maybe there's great husbands out here that know exactly the right things to say and what to do in every situation, but I'm, I'm like in my head like, uh, you know, she's, she's in pain. She's, you know, she's verbalizing that pain. Um, you know, I remember like standing right by her head like, do you want me to help, help you breathe, do some breathing exercise? She's like, no. Uh, I'm like, okay. Um, and then I remember like this moment where I like put my hand on her shoulder, like that was like the right thing to do, right? Like, okay, um, I can't, I don't know what to say, so I'm going to, I'm just going to be, right? I'm going to touch her shoulder. And I remember just, don't touch me. Uh, I said, okay, I'm just going to go sit over here on the couch. And so that's actually what I did. I just, uh, during the labor of her first son, I just took a seat on the couch. I was like, how am I, I don't know how to help you. Um, when someone is laboring in pain, you wish that you could participate with them. You wish that you could help them. Like, what? And you feel helpless, and what am I supposed to do? Uh, but here's the, the beautiful thing about God's response to evil and suffering. 
when we actually view it from the perspective of being in Christ. Uh, And I hope you can see it here in Romans 8, because Paul says, For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, as a foretaste of the future glory, a foretaste of the life that's coming, a foretaste of life after labor, of why we're going through the suffering. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. See, what what Paul was saying in Colossians and what Paul is saying here again is that when we suffer, when we labor, when we experience pain, uh, it is not aimless. It is not pointless. And we're not even doing it alone. We are actually laboring with Christ and what he is trying to birth in our world. We're laboring with Christ. And so it's not like me in the, in the natal unit where I feel helpless and I don't know how to help. You know, Jesus, Jesus is saying, no, you are helping. Every time you experience pain, every time you experience suffering, if you are in Christ, if you put your faith in me, you are participating in the labor of what I'm doing, the new creation that I'm bringing about. What he's saying is that labor is not the end of the story. And we, knew that in, we know that intuitively when we think about labor, that the reason you go through labor, the reason that, that you can actually joyfully enter into that journey and choose to do it uh, is because of the joy that you think is going to be on the other side, the hope that you have. Labor, we understand, is not the end of the story. And, and what Paul is saying, what Jesus is saying, what the Bible is pointing us toward is that every suffering, every pain is not the end of the story. It's actually a process of labor, of God doing something in us, through us, of us doing something in God, laboring with God. And then he goes on a couple sentences later to say this, and we know that in all things, same text, in all things God works, God labors, for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So I don't know your story, I don't know your pain, I don't know the suffering you're going through, but, but I know that God's response is Jesus, and that in Christ, God will repurpose your pain. I can promise you that. And we might not know that right now, we might not know that in 10 years, but I promise you that at some point in eternity, that God will help you see how your pain, how your suffering actually contributed to birthing what he was doing in history. Not only is God always present in your pain, but God will repurpose our pain. God doesn't cause pain every single time, but God can use any pain that we give him and recycle it for his glory and his purposes. We endure labor pain because we have faith in what's going to happen after labor is done. In Christ, every pain Every labor can be repurposed for the new thing that he's doing. Every suffering is participation in the labor of God. Every suffering is participation in the labor of God. Every suffering is participation in the labor of God. And how do you participate? Well, Paul tells us over and over again, he uses these three phrases, these three words, these three nouns, You participate through faith, hope, and love. Faith, you trust that God is bigger, that God is better, that the story that you see isn't the whole story. Hope, you don't give in to despair. Despite how dark things might seem, 
You don't lose hope in recognizing that God is doing a new thing, that he's birthing something new, that what we see, what we know, even what we experience on this side of death is not the end of the story. That death was once this black hole, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus, death is now the beginning of a new creation. You love. You want to do something? You want to do something with the evil and suffering in the world? Well, you might not be able to fix it, but God tells us to give our energy and our focus to love. Love God, love others. Work as far as it depends on you to be the loving voice, presence, hands, fingers of Jesus in a suffering world. Because every suffering you participate in, you are, you are participating with Christ. So even when you don't understand everything, choose faith, choose hope, choose love. This is what Paul teaches us. Labor with Christ to do what he wants to do in the world. Horatio Spafford, this is what I'll end on here, Horatio Spafford knew something about life's unexpected challenges. Uh, He was a successful attorney in the 1800s, in the late 1800s, and a real estate investor, and he he lost all of his fortunes in the great uh, fire of Chicago in 1871. Around the same time that he lost everything, his four-year-old son died of scarlet fever. Uh, and so at this point, he thought a vacation, a vacation would be a good idea for, for his wife and the remaining, remaining four daughters that he had. And so he sent his family off to England ahead of himself, and then he was going to join them in England for a much-needed vacation away. As they were traveling by ship to England, there was a shipwreck in the, the Atlantic Ocean, and the ship, um, many people died in that ship. Uh, over 200 people, including his four daughters. His wife, Anna, survived the tragedy, and upon arriving in England, she sent him a telegram back to her husband that just said, Saved alone, what shall I do? You know, Horatio didn't know what to tell her, what to do, but uh, so he just decided to go to her. And so he took a ship, he got on a ship, went to England to be with his wife, and... Uh, and so at one point during the ship, during the voyage, they were, they were going over the area of the, the ocean uh, where his four daughters had died. And the, 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 uh, the captain let Spafford know that, hey, this is the area uh, that you lost your four daughters. Uh, and in that moment, as he's going over the seas, he sensed the presence and peace of God that surpasses understanding in the midst of great loss. And he actually wrote, in that time, uh, hymn, a hymn that, was, that would be a great comfort to many people uh, throughout history, and one that I'm sure you've heard at some point in your life. And he penned the words in that moment on the ship, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. I don't know your story, uh, but God does know your story. And you're in the middle of it. Uh, And it's not done being written. But I believe that when you place your faith, your hope, and your love in Christ, that he can rewrite any story. And that you too could say, it is well. Regardless of what's going on, it is well with my soul. going to ask you to be bold here in a minute. Um, 
suffering, disappointment, pain, uh, God not showing up when we feel like he could or should. Uh, I'd like you to reflect here in a, uh, as we close uh, on where that might be happening in your life, where you might be feeling like God hasn't shown up when he could, uh, like there is a situation that is ongoing and unresolved and uh, where you feel like you're dependent on God to show up. Uh, and if you find yourself in that place this morning, I want to invite you to be courageous and just put a, put a hand in the air um, to be bold and just to put it up high. And I want, I'm going to ask you to, to leave it there. And uh, even as an encouragement for other people as they're thinking, hey, do I want to put a hand in the air? I would encourage you to give you a moment here to say, hey, uh, I am, there's pain, there's suffering in my story or in my family, uh, and I'm waiting on God. I'm dependent on God. I need God to show up. Um, and I want to, I just want to pray for you uh, as we close. And I invite you just to turn your hands upward as a, in a posture of receiving here as we close. Uh, God, we thank you that you have answered the question of and what a good and powerful God would do in the face of suffering. You have answered it. Uh, Lord, we don't always understand it. We, don't, we can't always wrap our head around the mystery. Um, but in that, in that space, we recognize that, we, that you're God and that we are not. And so we submit ourselves to that mystery. We submit ourselves uh, to the gospel that we see most clearly in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you are always present with us. Lord, we thank you that there's no pain and no suffering that you can't repurpose. And God, I pray for each person here, for each person that raised their hand, that you would give them faith, hope, and love. Lord, I pray that you would give them faith, that you would give them the courage and the capacity to trust you even when they don't see where things are going or why things are happening, that they would trust you when they don't understand. Lord, I pray for hope. I pray, Lord, that suffering, pain, and disappointment would not uh, distinguish hope, but, Lord, that you would rise up hope from within us. Lord, that we would, uh, our eyes would be set on what you're doing, where you're bringing us on eternity, Lord, that you are not finished the story. Lord, may we recognize that we are in the middle of a story, not at the end of the story, that we are in labor pains, but we are not yet at the new creation. And may we live in that tension, Lord. So we pray, uh, I pray for hope, that you would empower us, that you would fill us with hope. And Lord, I pray for love. I pray, Lord, in the the midst of these questions and these doubts and these disappointments that we would be people that are marked by love. Even if we don't have all the answers, that would not stop us from loving you. That would not stop us from loving others. That would not stop us from being your voice, your presence, your hands, your feet, or even as Corey Ten Boom said, your fingers. Lord, we uh, are dependent on you and we choose to co-labor with you in what you continue to do in the world. So we thank you for faith. We thank you for hope. We thank you for love. We thank you for a good news story. And Lord, may we live in light of that 
in our lives, in the midst of our own stories. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. If you would like to receive prayer for uh, anything, uh, we have prayer teams available. I know a topic like this can sometimes uh, poke at some areas in your life, uh, but we want you to know that we are family, that we are here with you. We want to walk with you. Uh, We just encourage you to be courageous and reach out, and we'd love to pray with you and walk with you. Um, Other than that, I pray you'd have a great week. uh, And just a reminder that starting point, uh, week one, uh, will be happening shortly after the service. Have a great week. Thank you.